in 1 Kings chapter 2. We're going to continue our journey in 1 Kings. Um, this morning, we're going to, in a sense, cover the whole of chapter 2, but we're going to read and preach from the first 12 verses. Those verses that tee up the action, and I mean action, that takes place in the verses after that. Um, and so I would encourage you later to go and read those, uh, the rest of that chapter, and it'll, it'll tie up the storylines that, that are uh, earlier in the book. Of this chapter, and since we'll tie up some storylines from earlier in the book. Um, I also want to acknowledge something to you. Uh, maybe over the past couple of weeks, as we've made our way through the first chapter, there are a lot of names. You might be feeling this uh, sense of just being overwhelmed. There are a lot of names. And I need you to be patient with me in being able to pronounce those names. And there's a lot of storylines. And maybe you're hearing those and you're not familiar. I want to encourage you. Um, hang in there. And... As we go through these names and storylines, we're going to try and keep a focus on, on the main story. So today, you'll again hear some names. And I'll provide background where we need some background in those stories, but here are the names you need to focus on. David, Solomon, Jesus. Focus there. And now, kids, for your focus, I'm trying to give you some, some questions to think about. Here's one for today. We, you want to be strong. You want to grow up to be strong, don't you? Well, this passage is going to tell you how to be strong. How to be strong in Jesus. And so listen for that, and you can talk to your parents about it. Uh, afterwards. What does it mean to be strong in Jesus? Now, for all of us, let's, let's turn to the word of the Lord. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways and keeping His statutes, His commandments, His rules, and His testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, wherever you turn. So the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom. But do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. 
For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there also with you Shemai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do with him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. And David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, this is your word, and it's at times a difficult word for us to hear and to receive. It's confusing as we come, as we always do. Dependent upon your spirit, would you give us understanding? An understanding that points us to Jesus, to our need of Him and the hope we have in Him. Do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you remember a couple of weeks ago in our first sermon in 1 Kings, we talked about the theme of that passage, and I said it was a theme that would run throughout the whole book, and to a very real extent is the theme of our lives. It was this. Who will be king? Who will be king in Israel? And maybe more pressingly, who will be king in your own life? More simply, who are you living for? The answer to that question, the way we answer that in our lives, will do much to shape the priorities in our lives. It will shape the direction and where we turn when we run for provision and for protection. It will shape the way we think about and embody the strength that we read about in this text. Here, in this passage, David is, is offering words of wisdom to his son. It's, it's a father to a son. It's an, it's an outgoing king to an incoming king. King And he, in giving him these words of wisdom, is telling him how to establish his throne. So doing, calls him to be strong. Be strong and show yourself a man. That, that language, that's warrior language. Given from the warrior of Israel to the new incoming king. We're going to unpack how David calls Solomon to do just that. It starts out uh, with this counsel to be strong by embracing the word. Verse 3, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written and the law of Moses. <clears throat> the king lives with authority. The king is 
and authority. It was true then, it's true today. The kings and leaders of our day have an authority, but that authority, as David is drawing out for Solomon, is a derived authority. It's an authority that is given to them and comes from another source. David, in pointing to that source of authority, is telling his son Solomon to embrace the word of God by living and leading under the authority of God. David's telling Solomon, a lesson that we need to hear, that strength is rooted upon and anchored in the word of God. As David counsels his son in this regard, he's telling him to walk in the Lord's ways. Now, to walk is to be active. It's it's to take hold of the Lord's ways and to walk in them. Not to just know about them intellectually, but to embrace them in his life. There's There's a constancy to it, a dailiness to it that Solomon is to embrace in this this path of life that he is to walk. David tells him to keep the totality of the word. You hear the totality of the word in, in in the words given to describe the word. David speaks of the statutes and the commandments, the rules and the testimonies. The statutes and the commandments, it's the the law of God, the whole of the law of God. David is pointing to the law, the moral law of God, and telling Solomon to live by them, to live by the law. He then goes on to speak of the rules and testimonies. If the statutes and commandments or the moral law, the rules and the testimonies or the application of that law in specific cases for the nation of Israel. Israel was a theocracy. And this is the the case law for Israel telling the nation how to apply God's law in specific instances. Solomon is to know these statutes or know these rules and testimonies and to apply them justly. He's to live by the whole counsel of God. We're reminded in Matthew that Jesus, when he is tempted by Satan, he goes back to Deuteronomy to tell Satan that man is not to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's a sense in which David is telling Solomon the very same thing. His life of leadership is to be a life of obedience, a life of submission. And in the opening verses of chapter 2, David is telling Solomon, this is the measure of true manliness. This is the true measure of strength. In this language, there's, there's an echo, an important echo that we that we hear from Joshua chapter 1. There in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord is speaking to Joshua as he's about to lead the people of God into the promised land. The Lord's sort of um, giving him a pep talk of sorts. Joshua 1, verse 6 through 9, we hear God's words, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
only be strong and very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Three times there is that that repeated refrain, be strong and courageous. language that we find in the Word of God. Now look, I, I didn't serve in the military, and I'm so thankful for all who do, and I mean no disrespect to other branches, okay, but I think the Marines seem to carry for themselves the mantle of our nation's warriors, and they have a saying, Semper Fi, Semper Fidelis. Is always faithful. Now, for the Marines, that means to be always faithful to one another, to their nation, and to the code. There's a sense in which the Word of God is calling us to always be faithful. When I prepare to preach every week, that's my prayer. Lord, give me a fidelity to the Word. I don't stand here to to share with you my wise thoughts for the week. I don't have that that place. My call is to stand here and proclaim to you the word of God and to be faithful to it. That is my prayer, but it ought to be all of our prayers. David is telling his son, always remain faithful to the word of God. That is the prayer as I preach. That is to be our prayer in life, that our Fidelity to the word would be God-honoring. But is it? Are you living with the fidelity to the word of God? Are you living with the dependence upon the word of God? And is there a daily in that dependence? Dailiness that feeds you. Dailiness that shapes you, and a dailiness that bestows on us the authority that we need in this life to carry out the various callings the Lord has placed on our lives. Are you living with that fidelity to the Word of God? That is the call that David is placing on his son's life, and a call that we have. Here and it is the definition of true strength, of of manliness. Though it is not limited to the men in the room, it is a call for all. But what about this uh, call to prosperity that we read in verses three and four? Those two are an echo of what I hope you heard in Joshua chapter one. But what is that prosperity that the Word is calling us to? And and what is the conditional nature that it seems to be describing? 
go back to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You've heard me speak of that passage over the past couple of weeks. You'll hear it often in our time in Kings. There in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord made a promise to David. It was the Davidic covenant, and the promise that he made was there will always be one of your offspring on the throne. And the Lord would would establish an eternal kingdom through David's line. And that promise, if you go back and read 2 Samuel chapter 7, there are no conditions in there that we read in Kings and we'll continue to read in Kings. There is one bad king after another. And we're left scratching our head saying, Lord, why are you giving him another chance? Why is there another son of David on this throne? The throne continues because God made an unconditional promise and God remains faithful to his promise. The prosperity uh, promise here, however, is not... uh, It's not speaking to the continuation of that promise, but rather our enjoyment of it. God remained faithful to his promise to keep a king on the throne. But their sin hindered their enjoyment of the blessings of that promise. They sinned and it brought about the discipline of God. What's that? Truth lands on us. Our unfaithfulness doesn't negate God's promise, but our unfaithfulness due to sin brings on God's discipline. And it it hinders our ability to enjoy all of the blessings of God. Now understand the both and of this. The kingdom of God is not dependent upon us. The kingdom of God is established by Jesus, and the kingdom of God continues in the strength of Jesus. We do not carry the burden of either establishing the kingdom or maintaining the kingdom. We're free of that burden, which gives us the ability to rest in the kingship of Jesus. And yet, our enjoyment of blessings of the kingdom are very much connected to our faithfulness, to our obedience. It's not a conditional promise for riches and wealth, but our experiential enjoyment of Jesus is is nurtured, it flourishes under our obedience to God's word. There are blessings that come in this life by virtue of our obedience. Our God is a God of grace. He calls us to grow in holiness. Our sin hinders our relationships with one another and to an extent with God, though He keeps that relationship in Christ. One commentator wrote of this both and as law obedience is the condition for promise enjoyment. Hear it. 
in 1 Kings chapter 2, we heard it in Joshua chapter 1. That's the opening wisdom that David gives Solomon, and we can cling to that wisdom. It, it, is, it seems to be God-honoring, but something turns in verse 5. There's a, there's a change of tone, a seemingly change of direction. What starts out is David's call to Solomon to seek the Lord here in verse 5, seems to become something else, to seek something else, to seek retribution. Started out with a, a call to embrace the word. Now it's seemingly a call to eliminate the enemy. We haven't even read the rest of the chapter. This starts to sound like an episode of The Godfather. The new Godfather comes into place, and his call is to kill off all the enemies. And to an extent, that's what we see. David's warning to Solomon to, to clean up all the lingering messes. And so is that what God is calling us to do? Is that how God is calling us to be strong? What is he teaching us here? There's a tension in 1 Kings. We've talked about it. We'll continue to see it. Um, we want to carve out some of these passages and just throw them away, but we can't, and I won't. And I'm going to leave us in some of that tension. It's a reminder to me and to all of us that the Word of God is always true even when I don't understand it. Talk about the distinction between prescriptive and descriptive texts. And I think that helps us to an extent in understanding what's going on in this passage. The prescriptive texts tell us what to do. The descriptive texts tell us what has happened. I don't believe that God is here describing for us a way to eliminate our enemies. But I also don't believe that we can just ignore what he's saying here. We can't just say to ourselves that David is going rogue. We need to ignore this. No, there are some appropriate lessons for us in this passage. There are principles and there is practice. We need to see the principles that are established and the practice that took place. So what's going on here? Let's walk through some of this story. First, there's Joab. And David's instructions regarding Joab. He was the military commander. But Joab had killed two men in a time of peace. And in so doing, he, he brought blood guilt on himself and, in a sense, on the nation. And yet, David, knowing all of that, didn't deal with it. Why wouldn't David deal with Joab's blood guilt? Well, much of it, as it was always the case for David and us, was due to his own sin. Perhaps David still thought Joab could be useful to him, and so he pushed the problem on down the line to Solomon. We're left here to wonder, is this instruction about the glory of God? Or is it about political wrangling? Ultimately, 
actions of the principal, Joab's sin brought about his destruction. He was a threat to the kingdom, and Solomon acted strongly. Then they're the sons of Barzillai. They were loyal to David when David was on the run. You see, his older son, Absalom, had uh, caused a, had, had brought about a coup, and David was on the run, and while he was running for his life, the sons of Barzillai welcomed him in. Now David is calling Solomon to return the favor. And again, we're left to wonder, are these instructions about the glory of God, or is it about political backscratching? Regardless, Barzillai was kingdom-minded. He served the rightful king of Israel. Finally, Shemai. What was his crime? No lie, he threw rocks at David. He threw rocks at David and uttered some curses. David was on the run once again. And some of that was rooted in his own sin. And so when Shemai threw the rocks and offered the curses... David then saw it as providential, and he refused to punish him. But now, in his old age, when he's passing the throne, he tells Solomon, bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Sheol is the grave. Does the crime fit the punishment? It doesn't feel like it. And so why is David putting this on Solomon? It all leaves us feeling empty. And again, you haven't yet read the rest of the chapter when the death squad goes out. Is this what David meant when he called Solomon and us to be strong, to show himself a man? Again, there's a tension. Yet each of those who were executed each of those who were banished had something that they wanted more than the good of the kingdom. What about the actions? What about the practice? How are we to think about what we're reading here? Rick Phillips is a, is a pastor and, and commentator who wrote about this passage. And, and he writes, when David directed Solomon to murder all his rivals and begin his reign with a sword bathed in blood. He left a legacy not only of principle, but also of unbelieving pragmatism. Not merely a faith and reliance on God, but also a fleshly self-reliance and worldly use of power. Principles and pragmatism or Another word for pragmatism, practice. Principles we must cling to. We can't just throw them out. Allegiance to the kingdom of God and to the true king of kings means everything. It was true for them. It's true for us. We're called to live with allegiance to the kingdom of God under the true king of kings. That allegiance means everything. But when we read this Account, we see practices that now on this side of the cross, looking back, we must reject. Is this how we're to deal with our enemies? No. 
that little question mark that you see in the outline, eliminate the enemies, is meant to communicate much. Is this to be our practice? No. And yet also, who are the enemies? Is there a sense in which we, ourselves, are living as enemies of the kingdom? Who's on the throne of our lives? Is it King Jesus? Or is it the king of self? The word of God challenges us. And if the king of self is sitting on the throne in our lives, then in specific areas of our life, we are indeed living as enemies of the kingdom. It all takes us back to David's opening words, those, those good words that we can cling to. In essence, David is counseling his son, don't waste your life by living for yourself, when instead you can live your life for the glory of God. So again, us, how are we thinking through those big decisions in life? Decisions of vocation, decisions of relationships. Decisions of of location and community, those big decisions in life, how are we thinking about them? What lens are we considering them through? Is it the lens of self? Or, in the context of the kingdom of God, are we living with Christ on the throne of our lives? And are we considering these big decisions in life through His lens? Through the lens of His Word, the call to kingdom citizenship is a call to honor Jesus and to live for Him. That is to live for the glory of God in the big decisions of life, but also in the everyday. In the everyday decisions and in the everyday confrontations. David calls Solomon to settle the score. Are you living with a desire to vindicate your own name? Why? What's going on in your heart that stirs a desire to vindicate your own name? There's much in all of us that wants that personal vindication, but it causes us to take our cues from the world around us. It places our trust for provision and protection the king of self. But the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us from all of that and says there is one who has vindicated us. There can only be one king. And though the kingdoms of David and Solomon were glorious, they were not the ultimate king. That position is reserved for King Jesus. We've said over the past couple of weeks that in Israel there were three offices. The office of a prophet, the office of a priest, and the office of a king. Jesus fulfills them all. And your meditation for worship this morning is taken from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26, which asks, how does Jesus, how does Christ carry out the office of a king? 
answer we find there is Christ carries out the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. King Jesus is powerful. And King Jesus is gracious. In his power and his grace, they come together in our salvation. You see, through our salvation, he conquered us while we were yet still enemies and made us beloved children, citizens of the kingdom. And he did all by defeating the ultimate enemies of sin and death, by taking them on himself in our place on the cross. He is our good and gracious king and a life lived under the authority of King Jesus is a life lived free of the burden of self-rulership. A life free to live for His priorities, free to trust in His provision, free to live under His protection, free to find our strength and our courage in Him. Said it, we continue to see it, kings, there's a There's a tension in this text, and to an extent I'm leaving us in that tension, but we also need to see how Jesus redeems the tension. I want to close with a word that goes out to all of us, but I want to speak it especially to the men and especially to the young men. This passage is a passage of advice, father to son, from one king to the next which David is telling Solomon, be strong, be a man. The world hears that and sees the verses that follow and says there's an example of toxic masculinity. We can't have that. Let's throw it out and get rid of it. And in so doing, the world would throw out the call to strengthen masculinity altogether. But the Bible does no such thing. The Bible doesn't tell us to fear strength and masculinity, but to redeem it. Look back on Joshua chapter 1 and heard that threefold refrain to be strong and courageous. But in closing, I want us to look forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. The words of the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, in Corinth and in a sense, Closing the loop for us this morning. There. Tells us. While holding on to the principles of this passage, we're to redeem the practices. We're to redeem the practices by finding strength under the word. The strength that frees us from looking to our own strength and allows us to rest in the strength of Jesus and there to bring his strength to bear in our own lives and in the battle for the hearts of others. Men, young men, young men, this is the word, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, that closes the loop. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. How do we look back to this passage 
on this side of the cross, looking through the lens of Jesus, we see that our strength, our courage, our boldness is to be offered in love. Rooted in the love of Jesus, we are freed to love others without needing them to vindicate us. That is true strength. That is redeemed masculinity. That is a life lived under the authority of the King of Kings. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your word, and we ask that you would give us hearts of submission to your word. So would you give us your very presence? We can't do this on our own. We ask for the blessing of your spirit. Guide us, yes, strengthen us, all for your glory.